You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Inetpanais. And I'm Leo Stevens. And welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Morning, Leo. What are we talking about today? Uh, today I want to talk about due diligence. So due diligence is essentially a process of detailed review. It's designed to assist in making important decisions. A simple example of due diligence is when HR vets a prospective employee by calling their references, searching their online presence, or conducting working with children's checks. Collectively, these actions serve to confirm if a person is fit for the job and cross-check any assertions they've made through their CV or during the interview process. In the world of startups, due diligence is most commonly encountered as part of the investment process. DD will generally occur after a successful pitch, but before money is actually transferred to the company. It gives time for new investors to conduct their detailed investigation, confirm the founders are on a correct path, and potentially uncover any weaknesses that the founders might have overlooked or downplayed. Key areas investors consider through the due diligence process include appraising the company's core product, ensuring they have protected their IP, investigating potential customers or competitors, reviewing financial plans, and checking how the company is structured and managed. Overall, due diligence is a thorough process that requires time and energy from both the founders and the investors. For this reason, it is usually the last step in the investment process and conducted for businesses that look highly promising. It is not done as a general pass of all pitches made. And that's the due diligence process. Thank you. So you mentioned time commitment. What, what are we talking about in terms of the due diligence process? Is that a day, a week, months? It's probably weeks. Um, depending on the size of the deal, will depend on how detailed it can be. If you're talking about a merger of two large companies, it could be many months of due diligence to go through all of their accounts and work through that process. For startups, you're probably looking at between two and six weeks, and it will depend on how progressed the business is, how many plans there are to review, and also, I guess, what type of investors you're dealing with. A venture capital firm with professional investors might be more efficient at that process than a, a syndicate of angels would be. And you mentioned intellectual property or IP protection. What, what is involved in IP protection? What, what do we normally understand under that? I mean, the conventional understanding is patents, in that you have developed some product, you have registered a patent over that product, and then you have legal protection to stop anybody copying your design. But there are other ways to protect IP. Trade secrets is another one, where essentially you have some element of your design that isn't obvious even to somebody who's purchased the product and can't be just copied from it, and you work very hard to keep that secret. So the source code for a lot of software packages are trade secret rather than patented. So registration of patents. A lot of times when we buy something, it says patent pending. What does that mean on a product? Yeah, so patent pending just means they've submitted the application, they've provided the documentation to the IP authorities, but it has not been reviewed or registered by the patent attorneys there. So you can view it as a kind of line in the sand. They've gotten a date which they can 
point back to and say, hey, we registered on this day. So nobody could then put in a registration and kind of steal it from under them. But you, you don't yet have certainty that they've actually got a unique product that can be defended in court. And realistically, that's the way patents actually come to a head eventually, is if you want to stop somebody copying your design, you have to take them to court. Would that scare off any investor? That the patent is only patent yeah. pending? Um, it, not necessarily scare people off, although it would probably be something that they would want to review a bit more cautiously. So they're probably more likely to look at the details of that patent and try to decide for themselves whether it, it could progress to an approved patent. So when investors have to do due diligence on core products, and this is obviously my, my last question given the timing, how, how would they review something if the product isn't part of their expertise and it's not immediately obvious? This happens really often um, where an investor is less knowledgeable about the field than the founders. So the approach to that is generally that they will try to pass off this idea to somebody else they know in their networks who is more knowledgeable. Find somebody who's in a good position to appraise that product that is still independent from the company. That's, that's the easiest approach. The alternative is for the investor to upskill themselves and learn that field very quickly, um, give themselves a crash course and try to, try to appraise it that way. Great. Anyway. Well, let me tell you about my topic for this week. And that is, what is a university international campus? So an international campus, or sometimes it's also called a branch campus, is an offshore higher education institution established by a university in a different part of the world. So for example, my own institution, the University of Wollongong, has a campus in the United Arab Emirates. And if you're studying at an international campus, then your degree will still be accredited by the home university. And in most cases, you actually take the same subjects as students in the country where the main campus is located. So you may ask, what are the advantages with respect to studying at the main campus? The obvious benefit is if you don't move to the country where the university's main campus is located, you're going to save money because international study can be very expensive once you add up the cost of flights, visa costs, accommodation. And if you study in your own country, you can probably eliminate a lot of these costs. Studying at an international campus also means you don't have to uproot your life as much, like I mentioned before, you can just stay in your own home country so you can be close to your family and friends. And finally, you're still going to get a world-class qualification from a reputable institution which you might not have available in your own country. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of university international campus. So is it fair to say that universities set these up primarily to access new student bodies and, and therefore gain further revenue? Absolutely, yes. Are the degrees at these institutions costed comparably to what you would pay if you were on the main campus or is it a different price structure? There are some differences which have to do to presumably the cost in that particular country, but it varies so much that I, there's no real standard answer for that because you get education providers from all over the world operating in all different parts of the world. Now, do these things have to be offshore international? Because you often hear about campuses within a country um, for a university that might have three or four campuses in the same country. Is the, is the rationale for those campuses the same? 
the that actually offers exactly the same experience, but you will be officially designated as obviously being in the the same country. So you get obviously a different experience than if you go to the international campus. Because in an international campus, you might get the same degree, but you will not get the same cultural experience. So branch campuses in other parts of the country are very similar in that regard, that you may get the same degree, but you might not get the same cultural experience as if you're going to the main university campus. Do you think what's lost is mostly the services on campus, the facilities, or is it the teaching staff as well? Because obviously there'll be different staff teaching at the outlying campuses versus the principal one. Um, it, it depends. Obviously, in international campuses, what sometimes can happen is that the staff there can operate on a fly-in, fly-out model. So in some cases, universities would fly their staff over for a concentrated period of teaching. Or in some cases, you might actually still get taught by your people on the main campus, but it will be done online, so they tune into the lectures. Or in some cases, they just hire different lecturers, but they teach the same material. Now, finally, obviously COVID has really drastically affected the way universities are teaching, and all of us are living and working online a bit more. Do you feel like people will telecommute to the main campuses from international addresses rather than go to these satellite campuses? Is, is there an option for essentially having an international availability of your courses there is always that availability for certain courses some courses at university and degree programs are designed to be completely delivered online but it's also driven by market forces because a lot of students do want a face-to-face component and that's one of the we don't have fully time to discuss this but that's one of the challenges in the in the post or in the current COVID world, but also the post-COVID world, what does actually what does it mean when you go to university if you're not going to get a face-to-face experience? What does it actually mean for your education? But we don't have time to go into that. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. That's a good wrap-up for this week, and we'll see you all next week. See you next week.